seated. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And for the next few weeks this summer, we will be studying through um, various psalms, looking at God's word for us there, and then, God willing, after Labor Day, we'll start a study of the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We'll begin our time by reading the entire psalm. Psalm 8. A psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to your word. We want to see your glory. This is a psalm that self-evidently proclaims your majesty, your glory, your goodness. And Lord, we know that we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We know that your spirit alone can implant your word to our hearts. And so Lord, we want to see your glory. We want to see your majesty. We want to rejoice. We want to be satisfied. We come thirsty. We come tired. We come weak and weary and discouraged. Show us your glory. Satisfy us with your glory. Strengthen us as we behold your majesty in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's a phrase sometimes as Christians we can bandy about, the glory of God, the majesty of God. And you can hear people, people who get passionate about this and struggle wondering, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to see God's glory? What does it mean to be satisfied with the majesty of God? Is, is, are these just things Christians say because we're supposed to? I think our psalm this morning will give us some instruction. It'll, it'll focus, as it will, a telescope zooming in on one particular aspect of God's glory. The psalm is clearly about God's glory. It's capped, if you'll notice, with verse 1, um, A, and verse 9, with identical phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then down in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so when a scripture writer gives us clues like that, gives us the bookends, we got a fair idea what the theme of this psalm is. And yet, as we study it, and there's so many things we could talk about that God is glorious for. You know, this, this psalm has very little to say, if anything, about God's glory and salvation, about God's glory and his patience. We're going we're to look at an aspect of God's glory. We're going to meditate on one of the marks of God's majesty. That's how John Piper refers to it, a mark of majesty in this psalm. And, and hopefully we will see something glorious. What is it that's making David cry out and extol the goodness of God's name? 
You know, Psalm 8's position in the Psalter is remarkable. For a book that we think of as primarily being of praise, Psalm 8 is really the first psalm of praise, direct praise and rejoicing in the Psalter. It opens, you remember, with Psalm 1, the sort of the wisdom psalm, the two ways. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law. The wicked are like chaff. Psalm 2 is a great messianic psalm of how the son of David will come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then Psalm 3, lament. Psalm 4, lament. Psalm 5, lament. Psalm 6, lament. Psalm 7, lament. Finally, we get a hymn of just praise extolling God. Praise that we can sing. It's, it's a corporate psalm. You notice that in the first line, O Lord, our Lord. This is a psalm for a group of people to sing and celebrate. It's also another nighttime psalm. Last week we, we looked at Psalm 4 as David contemplated how he was going to sleep and gave advice to those who were angry and agitated at what God was doing, how they might spend their night And here, again, the thought is on. He looks to the stars at the heavens. Look in verse 3. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place. Well, when can you look to the moon and the stars and see them? Is it night? This is some sort of evening meditation on David's part. We've got another night psalm. We've got the first psalm of praise. And a psalm heavily rooted in David's mind in in the events and the text of Genesis 1 creation of the world, the creation of the stars, God's goodness in that, and God's glory. So, so we're going to look at this. We're going to look at this psalm in, in three points, and we're going to try to figure out what it is that David is putting his finger on that makes God particularly glorious. There's many things we could talk about. David's got his, his finger on one thing, and my title gives you sort of a hint. It's God's glory seen. It's God's glory demonstrated in, in our weakness, not, not in our weakness itself, but in his use of weak people. God is glorious as he uses and accomplishes his, perf- his purposes through weak people like you and me, which is glorious good news. But let's, let's dive in now. We'll take a look first at the bookends of, of Psalm 8, God's majesty in his name. God's majesty in his name. We're looking at that opening and closing call. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I'm guessing most of your Bibles have the first Lord in all caps and the second Lord not in all caps. And it's important to understand what's going on here. In most of our translations, when the word Lord is in all caps, that's the translator's way of bringing across the divine name of God, what has been called Jehovah, if you bring it through the Germanic languages, or Yahweh, God's covenant special name. The word translated Lord, without the caps, is Adonai, Lord, Master, Ruler, Sovereign. So what's being called out here is, O Yahweh, our Lord, Master, Ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's important because the glory is to his name. Now we live in a culture where names don't necessarily connect with who and what you are. There's, There's no particular reason why I'm a Jeremy. There's no particular reason why Zadok's a Zadok or Zeb is a Zeb. But that's not for us to think then that God's name is, is sort of arbitrary. The psalmist is not saying, David is not saying, God, you've got, you picked a great name for yourself. Rather, and here's the blank, God's name is a revelation of who he is. God's name is a revelation of who he is. In Exodus 3, when Moses is talking to the burning bush, 
And he says, who shall I say sent me to Pharaoh? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And those Hebrew consonants that we we put in the vowel pointings from Adonai, we get Yahweh from, is a form from the root of the Hebrew verb to be. And the emphasis is this, God is first and foremost ultimate being and reality. And you got to sit back and, and realize how awesome this is. For every one of us in this room, there was a time when we were not. And for every one of us in this room, we are growing old, we are weakening, and there will be a day, if the Lord tarries, that we will die. There will be a day where we will change and our, our lives will not be as they are now. That is not the case for God. No matter how far back you go, there he is. I had, I had a professor in, in school who used to talk about Jesus ising. He just is, God is, God isn't becoming. He isn't, he isn't getting better or worse. He is perfect, he has been perfect. He is sovereign and he is. And he is the foundation and the, and the ground for all of reality. Because he is, we can be. And God's name, Yahweh, sums up this starting point, God is. This is the God who is. The God who is reality. The God who is self-existent, the God who needs no one, the God who depends on no one, the God who does not have needs outside of himself. A little later in Exodus, Moses, after the, the issue with the golden calf, cries out to God, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, show me your glory. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to my people, be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And he fully further unpacks his name. So when he's praising God's name, he's praising God's character, he's praising who God is. And he's saying this, this God and his character is everywhere. It's, it's, it's over all the earth. His name is majestic in all the earth. Everywhere we go on the earth, everywhere on planet earth, God's character is the same. God's presence is there. He is great. He is majestic. There's also another point here, point B. This implies that God has revealed himself to his people. Not everyone knows God as Yahweh. Now Romans 1 makes it clear everyone knows there is a God. Everyone knows there's a creator. Everyone knows there's a judge. Everyone knows there's a righteous God. But they don't know him. You only know him by his name if God has revealed his name to you, as he did to Moses in Exodus, as he does in his word. And so the, the, the chorus here, or the bookend of this psalm, is crying out in rejoicing that they know God's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in this psalm, we're just going to see how great, how mighty, how big, how vast God is. And yet here David is celebrating, I I know God's name. God has revealed himself to me. That's a wonderful thing that God has chosen to reveal who he is to us. You know, people want to sit around and talk about, I like to think of God this way. We got to understand if God doesn't stoop down and condescend to us, we can know nothing about him. We cannot reason our way up to a knowledge of God. God is the one who has to disclose his privacy. God is the one who has to say, here is who I am and what I am like. And the glorious news is he has done that. He does that with Moses in Exodus. 
And according to John's gospel, he does that more perfectly yet in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And a little later, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him to us. So God has, the good news, God has revealed himself. He has revealed his character. And we would do well to join in in praising God that we know him and we know him for who he is. As revealed in his name, as revealed in his son. Now, that right there is plenty to worship God for. That's plenty to get excited about. But there's more of the psalm. And so, okay, David starts out celebrating, I know, we know who the Lord is. And God's name, God's character is great. It's majestic everywhere. But now we're going to look at a particular manifestation of that greatness. We're going to zoom in, as it were, and, and focus on a particular attribute, a particular mark of majesty. And what we're going to see is, is God's glory in using weak vessels, using weak people for his purposes. Let's, let's start point two now. God's majesty and weak infants. And one of the contrasts in the psalm is this psalm's going to spend a lot of time talking about the heavens and the stars, and then babies are going to show up. And we're going to talk about the heavens and the stars, and then people are going to show up. And that's this contrast, it's two big contrasts, really. 2A and 2B are really contrasts. You can see it set out. At the end of verse 1, which really is the beginning of the contrast, you have set your glory or your praise above the heavens. That's one piece of the contrast. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes, still the enemy and the avenger. So let's look at this contrast in, in two parts. First, God is glory is proclaimed above the heavens. Now, when the Hebrew speaks of heavens, and Paul speaks of the third heaven, it's in the Hebrew concept, there's heaven one, the sky, the air, you know, clouds. And then there's the heaven of heavens, the stars. And then the third heaven would be where God dwells. That's sort of the Hebrew concept. So in, in 2 Corinthians, when Paul says, I was taken to the third heaven, he means not the sky, so as a Hebrew, you can refer to the sky as the heavens. You can refer in this psalm, as we see, to the stars and out there as the heavens. And yet this says, God has set his glory above the heavens, meaning the heaven of heavens, his dwelling place. God has set on his glory there. And, and that shouldn't be a surprise to us. The glimpses that we see in Scripture of God's dwelling in heaven, is, his glory is on full display. Just, just one example, in Revelation chapter 4, there are angelic beings of such greatness and power and, and, and majesty that the Apostle John not once but twice begins to worship them in the book of Revelation. There, there are angelic beings in heaven that if you saw one today, you would be very tempted to fall down on your face and worship. That great, that marvelous. And these beings, rather than basking in their own glory, all they do day and night, all they do day and night Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, all full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God has set his glory into heaven with these mighty beings. Or in Isaiah 6, 3, 1 to 3, this is Isaiah's vision of God's glory. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting at a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah sees angelic beings nonstop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, the apostle John gets a glimpse into heaven. I, I don't think they stopped in between. You get the impression this is nonstop. These beings who we would bow down and worship, if we're anything like the apostle John, these beings of such might, I mean, understand, angels have wiped out entire armies. Sennacherib's army, one night, no problem. Beings of such power and glory, they are in the presence of God and all they can do is praise and worship nonstop to each other. So that's, that's the first part of the contrast. God has established his praise or his glory above the heavens, okay? And then what comes next is meant to be a surprise. What comes next is meant to be contrasting or a shock. Even though God has established his praise and his glory above the heavens, He's chosen children, infants, to establish his praise and to deal with his foes. In fact, let's just even talk about the fact that God's got enemies. God's got enemies. It says it right here. You've established um, strength because of your foes, your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, God's not worried about having enemies. That's not a problem for God. The psalmist is, is not worried about that. The psalmist is marveling at is how God chooses to deal with his enemies. So we've got this contrast. We've got this expanse in heaven with beings of such might and such power that they could wipe out all life on earth if they chose, if God permitted them to. Angels who destroy entire armies without breaking a sweat. And yet our God has chosen infants. That's point B. God has chosen God's foes. This is what's marvelous. God's foes are defeated through children. God's foes are defeated through children. That's, that's what's supposed to be jaw-dropping. As we're looking at the mark of God's majesty, if we're looking at God's, what is particularly awesome about God that, that David is looking at, it's this unexpected thing. God, you'd think God would send a big, beefy angel to go deal with his foes. Michael or Gabriel. Out of the mouths of children. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. That, that's marvelous. That's wonderful. We're supposed to, our jaws are supposed to drop in awe that this is how God chooses to deal with his enemies. How great is our God? He doesn't send out a battalion of, of armies. He, he silences his foes. Now, this is problematic because the next question, okay, then how does he do this? And, and the short answer is I'm not fully sure. We've got at least one clear example in Scripture, but I've got some ideas. Let's, let's first look at what we're dealing with. There's something, apparently, coming out of the mouths on the lips of babies and infants. And, and in Hebrew, they, they, would, they would feed till they were sometimes three or older. So these could be children who can articulate, who can speak, or maybe he's considering just the, the murmurings, the babblings of a baby. I'm not sure. It's not entirely clear. But something, some articulation, some vocalization is coming off their lips. And it's not strong in and of itself. The whole point is babies are weak. We, we get that. Babies are helpless. Babies are weak. The Lord establishes something coming off their lips that gives strength. You can translate it the bulwark. If you have the NIV, it says praise. And that's following the, the Septuagint translation, which is the right idea, but it's just not an, a literal translation. God is establishing strength in coming off the lips, off the mouths of babies to deal with his enemies. 
What, what on earth does that mean? I, I wrestled with this for most of the week. And again, I, I don't have a full idea. I got some ideas. I, I think all of us, if you've been around children, there is something wonderful. There is something marvelous. And hearing children praise God. How many of you have been here on Awana on Wednesday nights and just marveled hearing little children singing to God? I, I, was, I, I put one of my kids to bed the other night and one of them was having a difficult time going to sleep. And I got to listen through the door as one of my children prayed to God to calm the spirit of my other child. It was moving. There's something wonderful. God's glory... Is, is being seen in children, which also makes it so evil when the enemy wants to put this upside down. You know, here what we see is God strengthening and establishing infants to silence his enemies. And yet today in America, the opposite's happening. God's enemies are silencing infants. There's a reason they won't let ultrasound machines into abortion clinics. Because if you see the glory of God on display, if you see that baby, it, it silences God's enemies. It, you can't respond. You can't refute that. And so David is marveling that God would choose this means, this method of dealing with his foes. The, the point here um, is God has established his power through the lips of infants. And the theme that we see that's, that's resonating through Scripture is um, point B, double I, he defeats his enemies through the weak. And that's a theme we see again and again in Scripture. I'll just read for you some passages that I'm sure are very familiar. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of our God. Or in 2 Corinthians, where Paul pleads with God. He's got a thorn in his side. It's tormenting him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is the character of our God to show his might and to show his glory by working mightily through the weak. We see an example here where he establishes praise and strength from the lips of children, which silences his enemies. We're going to see it again in the next section of the psalm. We see it most clearly in how God chose to deal with the enemy of sin and death and the devil. Think about that. He sent a baby to a manger. God became weak. God emptied himself, we sang earlier, of his rights. The Lord Jesus came frail baby, dependent on a mother's milk, dependent on others for food and to change him. And he, he lived as a humble carpenter. And through that weakness and through that humility, God's enemies were defeated. Death was defeated. Sin was defeated. Paul, Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So there's the humility, there's the weakness, there's the frailty, then here's the glory. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. The first mark that we're seeing of God's glory, God works through weak means to evidence his power. It's one thing if a God, if a, if a Lord were to defeat his enemies with his strongest warriors. The might and power and the majesty of our God is seen through his use of weak and weak instruments to establish his strength and power. God's majesty seen in weak infants. Next, we're to look at God's majesty in insignificant man. God's majesty in insignificant man. And we get another contrast here. My point A and my point B are the two sides of the contrast. David's going to look at the stars and the heavens, and he's going to look at man. That's the contrast. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Now the, the point of that, of that contrast is this. God is exceedingly great and man is exceedingly small. God is exceedingly great and man is exceedingly small. So David's out, he's looking at the stars and he's just contemplating just, just how vast God's creation is. And, and let me just Take a moment and follow suit. I want you to understand what we now know even more with our telescopes, with our space exploration. Here's, here's a relative size of man to the universe. Let's just start off with the relative size of the Earth to the, our nearest star, the Sun. Compared to the Earth, the Sun is enormous. The Sun contains 99.86% of all the mass of the entire solar system. So 99.86% of everything in our solar system is the sun. The sun is 864,000 miles across. This is about 109 times the diameter of Earth. The sun weighs about 333,000 times as much as the Earth, and it's so large that 1,300,000 planet Earths could fit inside of it. That's just one, our nearest star, the sun, is a medium-sized star. So 1,300,000 planet Earths can fit inside one sun. Okay, That's, that, the sun's big. That's just one star. Okay, how many stars are there? Okay. Some estimates peg the Milky Way star mass to have 100 billion solar masses or 100 billion times the mass of our sun. That's just our galaxy, 100 billion. That's the estimate. It's a, it's a conservative estimate. Averaging out the types of stars within our galaxy, this would produce an answer of about 100 billion stars in the galaxy. This is subject to change, however, depending on how many stars are bigger and smaller than our own sun. Also, other estimates say the Milky Way could have as much as 200 billion stars or more. So conservative estimate number of stars in, our, in, our, in the Milky Way galaxy is... 200 billion. In 1995, a small spot in Ursa Major revealed, they, they zoomed in a telescope, about 3,000 faint galaxies. So we got the first step is Earth to the Sun, where we've got 333,000 Earths in the Sun. Then we've got 100 to 200 billion suns in our galaxy. Then in one little spot they zoomed in, we've got, ooh, 3,000 galaxies. 
In 2003 to 4, upgrading, um, using upgraded instruments, scientists looked at a smaller spot in the constellation Fornax and found 10,000 galaxies, and even more detailed investigation in Fornax in 2012 with even better instruments showed 5,500 galaxies. David Kornreich, assistant professor at Ithaca College in New York State, using a very rough estimate of 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. Multiplying that by the Milky Way's estimated 100 billion stars results in a very large number indeed. <laughs> here's, a, here's, a, here's a name for a number I did not know existed. The estimate is 100 octillion stars. Octillion, which is a number one with 29 zeros. And David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars... How awesome is our God? He, he, and, and, and notice this. Is this the work of a really hard work week for God? David says, the work of your fingers. Is this a big deal for God to make? And then it's done. He made 100 octillion stars. <laughs> now you zoom back down from galaxies to solar systems to our planet to our continent to our country to our state to our town to this little building and here we are. I think we can understand how David can say in light of that, what is man that you are mindful of him? If you think the universe is big, God is so big that David can say in hyperbole, it's the work of your fingers. It was even tough. Challenging. That's how great our God is. God is that great, that wonderful, that marvelous, that powerful, that big, that vast. And yet... He's mindful of man, and he cares for man. This, this notion, by the way, of, of God's glory and God's godhood being demonstrated in the stars is, is not a new biblical concept. In a few weeks in Psalm 19, we'll see that. But just listen to Isaiah 40 as God puts himself up um, and challenges any other contenders for God, lest any of the idols of the nations want to lay hold to that claim. And he says in Isaiah 40, 25 to 26, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? 100 octillion stars, God has names for every one of them. God calls them out by name. In in Job, he rebukes Job. I, I bring out the constellations, he says. Not only make them, he sustains them. And yet the amazing thing, while, while dealing with in his mind a hundred octillion or so stars and their names and leading and directing them, he thinks of us. That's what's supposed to be jaw-dropping. <laughs> us. Man, the son of man, mortals. Point B, God deeply cares for mankind. That, that's, that's what's supposed to be glorious. That's what's supposed to be wonderful. That's what's supposed to be jaw-dropping. This God who made the stars, this God who guides them out and leads them, thinks of us. He cares for us. And then David goes on to describe how that that care is seen. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the birds of the field, birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. 
The amazing thing is, again, God's got these mighty angels. God's got these mighty beings. They could be the ones who rule. They could be the ones who order his universe. And instead, he cares for us. He thinks for us. He thinks of us. We're on his mind. And in two mighty acts, we see that clearly. And we're back in the the text of Genesis 1 here. He gives man immense glory and honor. And again, the point is this. By ourselves, we have no glory and honor. The whole point of this is we're insignificant. We're tiny. We're dust in the scales. We're meaningless. Except for the fact that in Genesis 1, the Lord God, after speaking, speaking the stars into existence, says this of only us and no other part of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, there's a sense in which we are insignificant. If you only have half the story, if you just understand how big the universe is, we, we are dust, we're dirt, we're, our lives are meaningless. And it takes the revelation of God to say, no, no, man has a dignity, man has a value. It's, it's not in ourselves. This isn't the, the self-esteem, feel-good message. It's a borrowed dignity. It's a, it's a given dignity because we bear the image of one who has supreme glory and dignity. And as image bearers, we can say he has crowned us with glory. The glory we have is not glory of Jeremy's a great person. Jeremy has glory to the extent that Jeremy bears the image of the living God. Jeremy is a a weak reflection of the one who is glorious. He's crowned us with glory and honor. He's made us a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And even that is only temporary. An amazing statement. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's, Paul's angry at the, or he's rebuking the Corinthians because they're suing each other. And he says, this is amazing. Do you not know we're going to judge angels? <laughs> we're going to judge angels. So we were made a little lower than the angels, but in the resurrection, in our resurrected bodies, we will no longer be a little below the angels. We'll be judging angels. Which brings us to the next point. He gives man total dominion and rule. And that, that again, so in the first point, the contrast is God's got enemies and God's got these great glory up in heavens and he chooses weak children as his tools of silencing his enemies. Here, God's got this enormous universe and he chooses as the object of it to give his glory and as the object, the regent, if you will, with which to rule his creation. Man, God chooses weak things weak people to work his purposes through to establish his power and his glory. That's what David is is in awe of. Why is God's name majestic in his mind? Because God does his works, his powerful works through weak people to his glory. To his glory. He gives them total dominion and rule. And again, we're back in Genesis 1. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding a seed, and he goes on. God gave this planet for man to exercise a stewarding rule, not for our own purposes, but as God's emissaries, as his regents, we are to rule. But notice in this text, this is, this is amazing, not just this planet. What does it say? Verse five, 
Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. What else in this psalm is said to be the work of God's hands? The stars, up in verse 3, the heavens, the moon, the stars. So our lunar landing is a biblical exercise of God's dominion over the work of his hands. The rover on Mars, biblical exercise of Man's God-given dominion over the work of God's hands. And this is jaw-dropping. God has chosen us as his regents to rule the universe. And when God sends his king to claim the throne of David, he comes in the form of a son of man. Now, I want to bring all this together. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, We've got an illustration of all of these principles at work, and a marvelous illustration that is. A God who works through the weakness of men to establish his power, a God who uses children to silence his enemies, God who uses weakness and humble means to defeat his foes. Matthew 21. Amazing text. You know this is the triumphal entry. Jesus will quote Psalm 8. I just want to look at it briefly and then we'll sing our closing song and praise God, extol his name. Let's just look, Matthew 21. In the blanks here, God's majesty in a humble Messiah. God's majesty in a humble Messiah. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and here's Zechariah 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here's that first theme showing up here in the triumphal entry. When, when, when the Lord God shows up incarnate, when Israel's Messiah comes, does he come at the head of an army on a chariot and in an entourage? No, it's the glory of our God to send his king in humility and weakness on a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. See, here's Jesus exercising dominion over his father's house. He enters in humility. He enters in weakness. He's ruling at least this temple for a short time. He entered the temple, overturned the tables and the money chambers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful thing that he did, the children, and the children crying out. Now there it is. There's the children crying out in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Oh, it looks like Jesus has some enemies here, some foes. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And 
the implication is, Jesus, rebuke them. How dare they ascribe that type of praise to you? Jesus' response, yes. Yes, he hears it. Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing children, I have prepared praise? And does the text give us any response from the Pharisees to that? It looks as though they're silenced, at least for the time being. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the triumphal entry, all these themes of this psalm come together. We have a God who works through weak, frail men, becoming one of them, entering in humility and weakness, exercising dominion over the creation. And when his foes rise up against him, the praise of children is pointed to to silence them. And this brings David back then in Psalm 8, and I'll call the worship team up now. This brings David back in Psalm 8 to where he began. As he contemplates these wondrous marks of God's majesty, he cannot help but say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we have a chance now to sing and close. We can do the very same thing. Marvel, respond, worship the living God because he is wonderful. We've looked at one, one mark of his majesty and it's glorious. Let's, Let's sing now.